Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Psalms 32. I'd love for you to have that open in your Bible in front of you. I want to show you a few things that I've been taught and that I see in this that I think will be uh, refreshing to you. So if you have that open... Uh, if you're visiting Christ Church, we're glad you're here. My name's Mark, and whether you're online or with us here in the building, uh, I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church, and we're glad you're with us today. I want to encourage you, uh, as we finish this series on the pursuit of wisdom, we've been looking in the Psalms and Proverbs to find those things that were taught in the text that allows us to live our lives with intentionality, to pursue the things of God wisely and to pursue them purposefully. And so we're going to finish this series today in the 32nd Psalm, And it is a unique psalm because it's a psalm of personal uh, repentance. It's 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 not the most popular psalm of personal repentance. That would take you to Psalm 51, where David had that moment where he sinned with Bathsheba. He had her husband killed to hide her pregnancy. Uh, from the world, and then he was confronted by his friend and prophet Nathan, and Nathan uh, created this little parable about someone mistreating someone who had just a few things while he had so many, and then when David became outraged, Nathan said to him, it's you, you're the man, I'm talking about what you did, and David writes the 51st Psalm, which is a powerful Psalm, declaring that not only did he sin, but he sinned against God, and he has a line in that where he says these words, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted unto you. In other words, David says, I'm not gonna waste this moment. I'm gonna take this moment, I'm gonna make it useful for you, God. I'm gonna allow people to see how kind you are and how forgiving you are. Now, Psalm 32, which we're gonna look at this morning, uh, many of the scholars believe that Psalm 32 was written in response to Psalm 51. Now, if you're going, wait a second, how can the 32nd Psalm happen after the 51st Psalm? I need you to remember what we talked about all the way back in week one of this series, that these Psalms are not written in the order they occurred. They're actually five books of the Psalms. And in these five books, they've, they've bunched them together on themes and authorship. So the 32nd Psalm could have been written well after the 51st Psalm, and many scholars believe it is, and I'll show you why they believe that. Now, St. Augustine, when he was dying, in the room in which he was dying, he had written on the wall next to his bed these words. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. So the way to wisdom is to know your own condition. And one of the conditions we may need to acknowledge, which will make us uncomfortable, is that acknowledging that we are sinners, that we have been corrupted and broken by our sin, is a reality that all of us face, but not many of us want to admit And so this psalm is one that I want you to walk out of here today with not just information. I actually want you to be able to walk out of here today cherishing the 32nd psalm for what it is. Because I think it's going to encourage you how to walk and live wisely in the way you live. So I want to begin with the first word is the word blessed. Now it's found in the first two verses here. And I want to show you them. It says in verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit, in whose spirit is no deceit. So it begins with the word blessed. Now you might remember all the way back to Psalm chapter one that the word blessed actually means to be complete and to be fulfilled. It just doesn't mean to be given a gift. 
It means to be, that you have lived such a life that you find completeness and fulfillment, which is one of the purposes of our church, is to help all of people find their completeness in who Jesus is. Not in themselves, not in what they acquire or what they accomplish, but in Christ himself. And having been able to say that and process this, I want you to know that there are only two Psalms in the first book, Psalm 1 through Psalm 42. In the first book of the Psalms, there's only two Psalms that begin with the word blessed. Psalm 1. Now, Psalm 1 says, blesses the man who does not do this, this, and this, but walks in the way of the Lord and delights in his instruction. And Psalm 32. Now, let me show you the distinction here. Psalm 1 said, blesses the person who lives their life the way God wants them to live. Psalm 32 says, blesses the person who hasn't lived their life the way God wants them to live and figures it out. I'll restate it one more time. Psalm 1 is for you perfect people. Psalm 32 is for the rest of us. So there is a blessing available to us even in our failure and not being complete in everything that we've done, in, in living outside of God's will and God's creation and what God desires for us. There's hope. There can be blessing in our lives when we realize we have not lived by God's instruction, but we can, that we can step into that and God has a blessing for all who do. As long as there's no spirit of deceit, as long as we're being honest about who we are. So in this particular psalm, one of the beautiful things that David does in writing this psalm is he transposes and, or he, he compares three words for sin and three things God does in spite of those. Now this is gonna be just technical for about five minutes if you'll be patient with me because you may wonder, I didn't come here for a Hebrew lesson. No, you did not. But I wanna show you something that when you see it, I think will help you delight in this song. There are three words of what sin does to us that David uses. Three distinct words for sin. The first word is transgression. It's found in verse one. Now a transgression means to depart from, to, uh, to go away from. It's an act of rebellion. It's a personalized word. A transgression is not only doing the wrong thing, it's doing the wrong thing against the person who told you not to or rejecting the thing that you were told to do. The second word is sin. And this simply means, it's, a, it's actually, I'm told, an archery term. It means to fall short of a target. It's picture back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had this moment. God told them, you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. And they went exactly against his will. It wasn't a personal affront to God. They didn't go against God's person. They went against God's wishes. The third word is iniquity and found in verse two. Now, if you have the New International Version, it'll say sin there, but it's not the best translation. The actual word is distinct from what we call missing the mark. And the word iniquity means corrupt, twisted, or crooked. Now, so you're like, so? Well, let me explain what has been said here. Now, the word transgression talks about our relationship to God. The word sin talks about our relationship to the law. And the word iniquity talks about our relationship with our own self, that we have twisted and corrupted and damaged ourselves. So you have these three words. What does sin do to us? It alienates us with God. It alienates us with God's perfect will for us. And it alienates us from ourselves, that we've corrupted, we've twisted, we've broken ourselves. And so what David does here brilliantly in this song is he talks about all that sin does to us. And the good news is, what did God do in light of that sin? Here are the three words that David uses that really gives us a good theology of forgiveness. 
The first word is the word forgiven. And the word that he uses means to lift the weight off of. Do you remember? And maybe I'm the only person in the room. Do you remember when you didn't do the right thing and you had to hide it? Do you remember the amount of work it took to keep it hidden? Do you remember the amount of lies you've told? And some of you are like, stop. Now let's, let's do this. Do you remember how you didn't sleep well? And you were always worried of being discovered? And you protected and you lied and you dug deeper and deeper and you went into the shadows deeper and deeper and deeper so no one would discover who you were but you knew. So you didn't rest well, you didn't eat well, you didn't think well and you were under this constant pressure. And then you met this concept of forgiveness in Jesus and you realized that he took that all away from you and then all of a sudden you didn't have to protect from the lies, you didn't have to do all of that and all of a sudden that weight was lifted off of you. Just nod your head if you remember what it was like to be freed from what you've done. Then you've understood the power of God's forgiveness. The second word he uses is the word covered. Now this goes back to an Old Testament imagery now, the Ark of the Covenant was this chest that was covered in gold and it had a lid on top of it. Now, inside the chest was the uh, tablets from, that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments on it. It had some other items in there that reminded them of God's deliverance of them. There were these mementos of God's faithfulness to them. And the lid would be placed on there and it was gold covered. And on the top of that lid connected to it were wings of, of angels, cherubim wings that went together toward the top. And they believed that the presence of God would hover over the lid and between the angel's wings. And the high priest would come in on the day of atonement and he would sprinkle blood on top of that chest, on top of the lid where the sins of man could be covered in, and covered into the presence of God. And so the word covered here is actually talking about this imagery of the day of atonement where the blood would allow us to enter into the presence of God again. And the third word that David uses, that what God does with our sin, with our transgressions, sins, and iniquities, is that God does not count them. It's an accounting term. In other words, it's no longer on your ledger. It's been taken care of. You owe nothing. It's been absolved. So what do we see here? Is that we have a relationship with God that's been damaged. We have a relationship with God's perfect will that's been damaged. And we have damaged ourselves. What does God do? God takes the weight off of our relationship with him. He restores us to him, taking the pressure off of being alienated from him. He covers us in blood so that no longer are we worried about the divine law. Justice has been met. And then he takes care of us. He no longer counts us as a sinner. He no longer counts us as a rebel. He no longer counts us as an outcast. So David begins this song by simply saying, how complete and full in the, is the person who was not in God, but is now. Who once was against God's will, but now is restored. And who once damaged themselves, but no longer have to live with that. See, the word blessed fits there, doesn't it? Psalm 1 is for people who got it figured out. Psalm 32 is for me. Blessed is the person who has sinned and God has forgiven it, covered it, and no longer counts it. The second piece of this I want you to see is the burden of the brokenness that David wants us to remember. And I'll show you why he wants us to remember it in a moment. Verse three says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. 
And I said, I, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Once again, not to be too technical, but you'll notice here that David uses all three words again. Transgressions, iniquities, and sins. He's bringing us back to this spot that there was, when those things weighed on us, it was hard. And we wish that God would just ignore our sin. We wish that God, and, and for some of us, in our theology of forgiveness, we think that God just simply went, okay, not a big deal, because I'm so awesome, it's not a big deal, we'll move on. But you don't understand forgiveness if you think that God just dismisses it and ignores it like it didn't happen. Here's why. God cannot ignore sin because he's holy and he's just. He cannot act like we didn't rebel. He cannot act like we didn't walk away from him and walk away from his will. He cannot do that. So God cannot ignore sin because of his justice and he will not ignore sin because of his love. What? You see, God cannot turn us over to our sins and let us just reap our just desserts because he loves us too much. A just God could allow us to receive the punishment we're due because that's the right thing. But God does not subvert his justice by loving us. He actually loves us enough to take our justice on himself. And so he came to earth he lived among us, he walked among us, he received our punishment so that his justice and his love could meet in himself and we were spared. And I told you that David brings us back to remembrance for a reason. He's, he's showing us who's doing the work. It wasn't David's confession that got him forgiven. It wasn't his confession that got his sins covered with the blood. It wasn't his confession that got those iniquities taken off and restoration of his soul. It was the work of God each and every time. You see, God's justice cannot ignore sin and his love will not just let it go on. So God steps in. And David uses a unique word there in verse five. That's why I'm hoping if you have your physical Bibles with you this morning, you'll see it there. It's the word selah. Now, no one's quite sure exactly what that Hebrew word meant, but it was a musical word, and people are pretty sure it means simply this, pause. Take a moment and think about it. It's like in an epic piece of music, whether it's contemporary music or classical music, there's a moment where there's this great crescendo. Maybe there's a great line in the song that the author of the song has written this line to just grab your attention. It's probably a good Lionel Richie song, to be honest with you. And there's this great moment where he drops this bomb line on you, and then the music goes into just an interlude. What it's getting you to do is stop and think about that word as it lingers, that thought as it lingers. And in the midst of this psalm, David says twice, when he thinks about what unconfessed sin did to him, he simply is telling us in this moment, think about it. Don't rush. Stop and remember what your life was like when sin reigned. When sin ruled over you and controlled your every emotion and your every reaction and your every second. Remember what that was like. And then after he says, and you forgave, and God forgave the guilt of my sin, David says, Selah, stop, think, listen, and then respond. You see, there's a difference between simply saying, I was a sinner and now I'm saved. There's a bigger difference in saying, I was a sinner and I need to remember how horrible that was. I need to remember what that did to my soul. 
so that when the world offers me more enticements to go back into that, if I spend just a few moments remembering how horrible it was, I won't remember the good old days. I'll remember the truth about how putrid sin is to my soul, my being, my relationships, my everything. And then you remember the goodness of God and you celebrate what life is like now, knowing what it was before. And then David talks about this being a blessing for all people. Once again, I remind you that Psalm 51 was David made a promise that I'm gonna teach the world, God, about how good you are and how you can be trusted. And then in Psalm 32, he seems to have done that. And David realizes that this is not only a blessing for him. This is not David saying, I was forgiven because I was a king or I was forgiven because I was special or I was forgiven because God likes me more than the rest of you. He's actually saying, no, this is what God does. And doesn't it sound like our God? That he cares and he's moved heaven and earth to bring forgiveness into our lives. And David said, if he'll do that for me, then he'll do it for you. And he'll do it for the person I hate and he'll do it for the person I love. He'll do it for the person I know well and the person that I've just barely met. That we have a story to tell. And this is what David does, verse six. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while that you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. David has equated before that sin felt like a flood that was overwhelming him and he was reaching out for air and trying to find a firm place to put his feet. And the waters were overwhelming. And he says, if you do this, notice, if you will call out to him while he may be found. Isaiah would use the same imagery years later in Isaiah 55. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. David used, or Isaiah uses big words here. He says evil and wicked. We don't want to see ourselves as evil and wicked. But when we think about the choices we made that broke our relationship with God, our relationship with God's perfect plan, and broke ourselves, then we understand what sin does. And knowing that each one inside of us, that evil does reign in our lives, that wickedness is available because we're selfish enough, we will do what serves us best at the cost of other people. But notice this, that David says, call while you can. Seek God while he may be found. And all that infers to each one of us is that he is available to us now, but he may not always be available to us. It's what Peter will call in 1 Peter, the last days. Now, I know the church doesn't want to talk about this, and I'm not making fun of us, but it makes us uncomfortable to talk about the fact that God is a just God and a loving God, and if we don't receive his loving sacrifice for our sins, we will only face his justice. And that will come at a huge cost to people who think this is all a joke or a myth or just something that gets Christians through the day. The reality is that there is a moment that God's window is open to receive his mercy and then that window will be closed and that will be called the day of judgment and that will be horrific for too many. So David's asking us this question. Shouldn't you and I encourage people that there is a day that the window is open and God's mercy is available? Shouldn't we be singing the songs of deliverance so the world knows that what we received in Jesus was not because we're special, but because he is? Because he also says that God will protect those that turn to him. Look at verse seven. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Before David was hiding behind being king, he had Uriah killed. 
He'd slept with Bathsheba. He'd got her pregnant. He had done all of these horrible things to cover up his sin. He was hiding in his own power, in his own ability, in his own image. But now he's hiding in the Lord because he confessed that. He got that out. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment, I want to be clear about this, that you need to live every day reminding yourself of what a sinner you are. I'm not suggesting that. But until you and I have really gone deeply into the hurt that we brought upon ourselves and others, we will we'll gloss over that so quickly. But David said, when I sincerely came before the Lord and I told him, he immediately removed all of it from me. He said, I have a song to sing now. I have a story to tell. David says, I'm no longer hiding in myself. I'm hiding in God. It's like Adam and Eve were hiding in the bushes when God arrived. It wasn't until he arrived and they came out and confessed what they did that God covered them and protected them and brought relationship back to them. So what are we to do with this? How can you take this and rejoice in it? How can you cherish this psalm? Well, we need to rejoice in the blessing. Verse eight says it this way. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. These are, David is talking as if God is speaking to us. He's, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord here. And the imagery here is what was promised in Psalm 1 and 2. That if we trust the instruction of the Lord and we trust the work of God's son, that he says that I will listen to the words he used. I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will counsel you, I will watch over you. I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, I'll be with you, I'll restore this relationship. We lost our relationship with God, we lost our relationship with the perfect way, and we lost our own relationship with our soul. And God says, I'm going to restore all of this, and then, should you trust me, I'm going to lead you. I will show you how to live wisely. I'll show you how to live fully. I'll show you how to live the blessed life. Verse 9, he offers us a word of caution, though. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. I love verse 9. I think that's the Mark verse of this, to be honest with you. Don't be a donkey. Yeah, you thought I was going to use the other word. Uh, my uncle had a baseball bat that was cut lengthwise, and he had an old stubborn donkey on his farm, and I always loved that baseball bat because it was flat on one side, round on the other. And when he wanted to move that donkey, he didn't reason with it. He didn't bait it. He whacked it. He'd come up behind that donkey with the flat end of that baseball bat and take it upside that donkey's hind end, and that donkey would go wherever he wanted him to go. And David says, don't be like that, that God has to, to pummel you and pull you and put a bit in your mouth and drag you across the field. Trust him. Take the instruction. Take the counsel. Take the restoration and live in it. Rejoice in it. Pursue it. Because many are the woes to those who won't. But oh my goodness, God's unfailing love will be revealed to those who follow him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing all you who are upright in heart. You have been restored. Live like it. Celebrate it. Remember it. Rejoice in it. How can we do this? Because I want you to remember that Jesus was crucified. Completely stripped, naked, uncovered, defenseless to the weapons of the soldiers. They lied about him. They arrested him falsely, they accused him falsely, and they convicted him falsely. They lied about him, they spit on him, they punched him, they tortured his body, 
They were so cruel to him, they hung him naked on the cross in front of everybody, humiliated him the entire time. It was a slow and horrible death. And why do I bring this up? Because that's what we deserved and he took it. That is his justice and love coming together in a moment in time so you and I would never have to face that. Why did he go through that? Because his justice would not ignore our sin and his love would not leave us to it. And so Jesus took that. Jesus restored by his blood our relationship with God, our relationship with what is right, and our relationship with our own soul. He restored all of it and gave it to us. So every time you say, Lord Jesus, save me, or you say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus did, you're actually calling out a song of deliverance. 1 John 1, 9 says it this way. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why Jesus came. This is where the gospel explodes in the midst of the 32nd Psalm. Our song of deliverance is a song of God's restoration. It's a song of Jesus' crucifixion. It's a song of the resurrection of Jesus showing us that he overcame our worst enemy, not ourselves, but death, so that we could live life. This is why the 32nd Psalm is so unknown and so unappreciated that I want us to think about. In fact, I want us to spend a moment of Selah. It'd be ridiculous to talk about this and go, now just go on, go back to your lives. No, no, no. Now you have a song of deliverance to sing. Your own heart needs to hear that song. And your family needs to hear that song. And your friends need to hear that song. And people you care about need to know that you and I are not in the family of God because we're special or because we're good or because we're talented or because he needs us. None of those things are true. We're a part of the kingdom of heaven because he is good. He is kind and we needed him. And he gave us this opportunity. What I'd like to do is just take just a moment, a brief moment for each one of us to say la, to think about what you heard, to think about what you've read, to have a conversation with God that restores you to him, that restores you to his purpose, that actually restores your soul to living again. Spend a few moments and receive what Jesus offers us. Maybe it's a personal prayer of forgiveness. Maybe there's a sin you need to confess. Maybe you just need to pray to be more bold with the truth of what Jesus is offering people who have no idea how good he is. Let's just spend a few moments in quiet and then I'll close with prayer. Father, you are kind and you are patient. You are just 
You will not ignore sin, but you were loving enough to come and die for us on the cross. You desire to be in relationship with us and you desire that we want to be in relationship with you. And you've given us everything we need. You've given us the teachings, the guidance, the blood and the resurrection of your son. You've given us your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth, to bring conviction into our hearts when we're wrong. Father, we pray this morning that this would be a place of confession. We pray for revival. Not a revival that draws attention to man, but a revival in each one of our hearts. Renew us today. Renew us in truth. May we speak to you of what we've truly done, what we truly struggle with, what we truly selfishly hold on to. May we give those to you to be removed as far as the east is from the west. Father, may we receive what Jesus offered us. And Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you for our song being a song of the King. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for all that you've done for us. We pray here today that lives will be changed by confessing sin and receiving grace. And not only receiving it once, but living it out. Father, may our stories this week invite others into this kingdom to follow this gracious, merciful King. Father, revive our country, revive our church, revive our homes, revive our souls. Thank you for being so willing to struggle with us as we learn to walk by faith. Teach us to be wise. Inspire our hearts. All of this this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.